lovely listeners and welcome back to Darling Why. It's Kate here and this week we're going to be talking about The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. So this episode has a bit of a different tone than maybe episodes previously and because of that I want to give some content warnings up top. If any of these issues affect you, please do take care of yourself primarily um, as we wouldn't like the episode to have an adverse effect in any way. We'd rather you give it a miss Um, then it'd be harmful. So we'll be discussing mental illness, particularly depression, suicide and suicidal ideation, medical trauma and psychiatric trauma, um, and some brief mentions of uh, violence against women and assault. So please do keep that in mind and we'll have a greater explanation down in the show notes. If you do like our little show, please do follow us on whatever podcatcher uh, you choose to use. And with that, let's get on with the show. Have you ever owned a bell jar? No, we used to have one in school though. All right, I've never like. Have you seen them? No. So we used to have one in the old. We had two labs in our school, so in the old lab, um, we had one, and it what it essentially is almost like a tall cloche shape. Okay. And then there's a mechanism on the bottom that yeah. you can use to pump out air to create a vacuum. Okay. So the experiment that you you can see in kind of schools and stuff is um, if you put like uh, an alarm or something that makes sound underneath it and then you pump out the air, the sound will go away because obviously you need air as a medium for sound to travel and it's to demonstrate the power of a vacuum. So that's where I first saw bell chair. (laughs) I don't think I knew that that's what it was called at the time, but that's where I first saw one. And and also you see them more these days. Um, You see kind of copies of them essentially as like uh, more display units. Okay. For like, I suppose, little plants, or I've seen little terrariums oh, okay. in them. Um, I and thought you were going to refer to like um, snobby weddings. Sorry. That's mason jars, different thing. But like in Victorian times as well, they used to display stuff in it. So um, if we're going to go along with the metaphor, which you will need to have some sense of it for yes. this book, I've always sort of found the vacuum function of a bell jar to be the more useful reading of this okay but that's not to say that kind of bell jar as display case or protective capsule are not also useful ways to consider it but i suppose when i'm talking about it because i suppose when the first couple of times i read it and the first couple of times i read this book was as a teenager i was gonna ask that yeah i only knew a bell jar as like a vacuum. Yeah. So therefore, I didn't realise it was used for other purposes. Right, okay. I actually don't remember exactly when I read it. Okay. My estimate is I was around 16. Okay. I know that I read it before I graduated secondary school, but after I read Catcher in the Rye. Okay. Because after I read this book, I told everyone with ears who would listen that this was everything I wanted Catcher in the Rye to be. <laughs> Mm. I've yeah. It's They're some, not similar books necessarily. I've heard this comparison. Was it for me? No. <laughs> okay, that's good. I have heard this comparison at various points in my life. I've um, heard this. I believe it's the comparison essentially lines of the bell jar is the catcher in the rye for girls. I mean, that's essentially <laughs> what I used to say. I think it's because so I read Catcher in the Rye because whatever I was reading at the time 
Um, and I think like people in bands that I liked were like, and, and it was all men in bands, you know, they were like, oh, catch him in the rye, man, just changed my life. Everyone's and so, a phony. Everyone's a phony. <laughs> so you just, I'm like, I'm going to read this book and it's going to speak to me as yeah. a 14 year old, yeah. you know what I mean? And it just didn't speak to me as a 14 year old girl mm. in the way that I think the 14 year old boys did. And maybe that's just because the main character is boy mm. uh, and just experiences the world differently mm. but what the bell jar was for me was i think what i expected catherine the right to be in terms of how it made me feel mm. and how i experienced it did it make you feel understood yeah as vague to, I, I really worry that that <laughs> way I ask, that sounds vague as far i i get that but was it that feeling of like feeling your experience has been say captured or you're experiencing like you're trying to articulate certain feelings but Sylvia Plath had really articulated them very well for you yeah to a certain degree in your teenage brain yeah to a certain degree because um as I'll get into when I talk a bit about the plot like Mm -hmm. there are things that happen in this book that are not my life experiences and some of the themes I'm going to talk about are the things that I suppose really either interested me in, in that sort of like eye-opening kind of oh that's what that is sort of way or have just really stuck with me over the years but yeah I, I, I think there was something about like the main character in this book is 19 mm-hmm. which I think I just kind of forgotten <laughs> I reread it this weekend and I think I just forgot that she was 19 how old did you think she was uh, early 20s but not like still a teenager do you know what I mean but obviously, if I read it at 16, 19 does seem much older, like in college, when oh. you've just done the junior search, does feel much older. But now, obviously, I'm a decade on from that. So I'm like, oh, it's interesting to think about this character as such a young, young person going through this now. Mm. I know, like I, every episode, I seem to be like, and this was my experience then, and this is my experience <laughs> now that I'm an, an older adult. But uh, it was an interesting um, contrast thing to think about as as like the older adult in the room between me and the character, I suppose. Yeah. Just to give a little bit of context about that, this book came out in, for the first time in 1963, which is important to think about when I talk about some of the things that come up. A, because I think some of the things in that time would have been considered quite out there to write about. Like she talks a lot about um, kind of sex and sexuality Mm. um, and what are the expectations of women. And she talks Mm. about mental illness and that's all quite bold in the 60s, I suppose. Yeah, I don't imagine there are many female writers either talking about those subjects in popular fiction or fiction that had any sort of reach from any sort of publisher of the time interestingly the mental illness thing uh there was a really famous book called the snake pit that came out oh i've never heard of it Uh, either had i until i read about it but sylvia platt was like gonna write something like the snake pit apparently (laughs) because it's based on her own life yeah it's semi-autobiographical but i suppose the idea to mine that part of her life was like okay there is a taste for this kind of thing yeah so I suppose I'll sit down and yeah. write it. <laughs> There's a lot of parallels between um, the novel and her life. Mm. But there is still like fictionalised elements of it or mm-hmm. I suppose kind of like composite elements did, of it all. Did Sylvia Plath work for a magazine? Yeah. 
Oh, okay. She did. Yes. I'm sure I'm because I I'm aware of certain things. So I'm as a lay person, I'm trying to sort of get that. I'm trying to get yeah. exactly. Like I'm not going to see him and be like, right, break down exactly which bits because we'll we'll be here for like six hours. No, I don't. And, and I don't think there's much use to that. Um, no. Because you haven't read it, um, would it be helpful to just, I suppose, give you kind of some bullet points about what happens in the book? Yeah, because I'm familiar with some of it because I sure. cultural osmosis. Yeah, and um, I'll I'll just bullet point it so I can kind of things kind of make sense yeah, later. Because I want to hear, I want to hear what I want to hear what you think. Yeah, and I mean, here's <laughs> the thing: you could probably break down any section of this into great detail and I won't do that yeah. because uh, that ain't us that ain't us and I didn't haven't studied English since I was 17 the the book opens with Esther Greenwood the main character yeah. is in New York because she's part of this group of, of 12 um, college women who have been selected to be part of this uh, essentially like an internship program a guest editorship program mm-hmm. at this magazine the kind of context being they're you know kind of being like wined and dined and brought about by all these companies or people who want to write stories have stories written about them and for all intents and purposes it's like something you know a thousand girls would yeah. wish they had yeah we we kind of get brought through because it's maybe the first third to the first half of the book is her summer in new york we kind of get brought through a variety of experiences that she goes through and I suppose how, how she is experiencing it yeah versus maybe how one would expect her to experience it yeah and she goes home then to the suburbs for the summer mm-hmm. with her mother and essentially becomes more and more depressed and ends up kind of uh, under psychiatric care for depression yeah and in various forms of treatment and it's kind of the story of her kind of descent into mental illness yeah. and then her recovery back out of that. In amongst all of that, there are flashbacks to like earlier parts of her really kind of college age life, if you know what I mean. So, yeah. um, is, and people she's the, known over the years. Am I correct in saying, and I might be wrong here, so if I am, tell me, but am mm-hmm. I correct in saying that most of this is told in some sort through a flashback type structure? It's not most, but it's it's a good good chunks of it. So the main part of the story is what I just just that's the yeah. timeline of what I just described. It's a summer it's I don't even think it's the whole summer in New York. I think it's like ten weeks or twelve weeks or something. Yeah. Because she's not back in college yet. Kind of near the end of the book she talks about the fact that she's gonna be returning to winter term. Yeah. And it's not clear is this like a year later or if this is just over one summer yeah but the, that's that's a linear timeline and then because it's told in the first person she just kind of like refers back to things that happened before so her um i suppose he's her boyfriend he definitely is her boyfriend at certain points and she's kind of done with him by the time she yeah is in new york but you know they're not officially broken up or whatever their relationship is essentially told in flashback right but it's just her kind of thinking to herself, prompted by whatever's happening in the real moment. Yeah. And there'll be like little mini memories back to when she was like a child mm. um, up in New England because she goes and visits the town she used to live in at one point. Yeah. And things like that. So, yes. And, and she kind of thinks a lot. There's times when she thinks more about like, what does this kind of experience mean in context of being a woman in this society? 
which again is largely sort of through memories of things that happened mm. but those memories can take up two chapters yeah in this 20 chapter book i get the feeling that the role of women in american society in the 50s is a big theme yeah i get that feeling i would say broadly speaking you could and this is you know definitely an oversimplification but for me the two things that stick out as there's like an internal world that's happening yeah which is esther's kind of struggle with mental illness which is certainly for me as a teenager reading it for the first time with kind of no context about it except that this is a famous book yeah and i like sylvia platt's poetry so i'll probably like her novel that's the thing that sticks out because it's very immediate you don't really need to dig in the muck to figure out okay it's very clear what's going on here yeah whereas when i was that age i picked up some of the stuff about the role of women in society but i was kind of so consumed by the the internal yeah mental health side of the story that yeah. i suppose i just noticed it less whereas on rereading it and kind of having a familiarity with the mental health side of things I kind of try to pay more attention to that external society and what are society's expectations, particularly like as a woman in the 50s yeah. rather than a woman in 2021, yeah. even though it's still many an expectation on women in 2021. Yeah. So you kind of have those internal world things and those external world things throughout. Mm. I'll start by talking about mental illness. Um, and how it's portrayed in this book because I do think that this book for me was a really interesting look at both the journey into like what reads as quite severe mental health problems and the journey back out of them Mm. considering like a large portion of the book takes place with her in in some sort of psychiatric care or psychiatric hospital you know Mm. and the book ends with her going into the like interview with the staff to see can is she getting out yeah i suppose the implication being like she will in the in the whole first half of the book where she's in in new york what really interested me about the way she writes this is like the way that the signs that things are going are going are feeling bad for her and aren't working well for her are there from the very very start even though they're not the storyline yet you know the mental illness as a theme takes over like it's very obvious and very like this is i'm handing this to you on a platter from kind of the midpoint yeah but you don't um start there like say it starts her doing an internship in new york in publishing and considering she's an english major and wants to be a writer is, is the, the thing she wants to be doing. What I didn't realise until I suppose the second time I'd read it through was the fact that she starts the book talking about death. Like it starts really dark. Mm. I'm going to be pulling some quotes for you, Louis, <laughs> for context, because I will butcher them. But this is the first, <laughs> this is the first paragraph, which was, it was a queer, sultry summer the summer they electrocuted the Rosenbergs and I didn't know what I was doing in New York. I'm stupid about executions. The idea of being electrocuted makes me sick and that's all there was to read about in the papers. Goggle-eyed headlines staring up at me on every street corner and at the fusty, peanut-smelling mouth of every subway. 
It had nothing to do with me, but I couldn't help wondering what it would be like being burned alive along all your nerves. I thought it must be the worst thing in the world. And so like, that's a very dark start to any book. Mm. And the reason it really struck me on the second read is that like during the kind of the, the road of the various treatments doctors put her under, uh, electroconvulsive therapy is one of those things. Mm-hmm which is, you know, it was in layman's term, shock therapy. Yeah. And it's called that in the book. Um, she calls it herself shocks, yeah. you know. So the fact that it opens with, wouldn't being electrocuted be the worst thing in the world? Yeah. It kind of sets off a, a sort of a, a darkness or a foreboding mm. to come. But like other things that are really just almost throwaway lines in the first part of the book that are sort of, just sort of like sprinkled in almost so that when you get to the point where things are very obviously and kind of drastically wrong you almost don't realize how you got there I don't I never felt like it was a shock when it was very clear that she was really unwell it's it's like uh, the frog in cold water yeah. being boiled yeah. and so it's it's kind of sprinkled and and kind of more heavily then as we go through but around like 50 pages in she says things like i decided to expect nothing from buddy willard if you expect nothing from somebody you are never disappointed hmm. which is a very pessimistic yes way to look at things definitely how i was yeah. as a teenager so i was like right. i can't be disappointed I'm if i just set myself up yeah. for failure and I try very hard not to do that anymore. She's not always able to really connect to others. So like she has a friend in New York called Doreen who's on the magazine with yeah, her. Yeah. And uh, like they go out, you know, on the town and she's kind of like a third wheel to Doreen and this guy Lenny she meets. And yeah. Doreen comes back sick and she just kind of lets her fall asleep in the hallway in her own vomit. Um, Even though Doreen knocks on her door for help, she just kind of (sighs) ignores her until she can't anymore and then just sort of lets her fall. So there's not a whole lot of empathy at at the start, which I don't think is her being a terrible person necessarily. She just can't feel it. Yeah, she just kind of doesn't want to deal with it and, and just doesn't really feel connected I think yeah another kind of throwaway line at a later point in the book is that she sees all she kind of envisions her life as a series of um electric poles yeah and she can see the first 19 yeah and she cannot envision anything past 19 which is a very sort of nihilistic way to think but but not that um I suppose uncommon uncommon if you're not sure where your life is going or if there is a point to it you know, on her last night in New York, she just goes on the roof and throws all her clothes away. Like, just throws them all <laughs> off the roof. Which, oh I suppose, to me, kind of read as like, well, everything is pointless anyway. And none of these clothes mean anything to me or represent anything to me. Because I just bought them to be fancy in New yeah. York anyway. So why should I bother keeping them? I'm just going home to the suburbs now. Yeah. And, and these don't mean anything. Yeah. So, like, that all builds up throughout this whole she's like rejecting would you say it's almost like a conscious rejection of the lifestyle it's funny i see it in two ways i think kind of in that external way i think yeah it's like well i only bought these clothes because i was kind of like expected to be a certain thing and i don't want to be that thing but it also just reads of such kind of internal like 
what's the point to any of this yeah. you know so it can be read in both ways and probably both are are true but like i say it's that sort of leading you down the path where it never feels sudden i think to be like oh we're at this point yeah okay you know it, but it didn't start off being like this this girl is unwell mm. so i i always found that really interesting one of the things this is the thing i think spoke to me when i was a teenager which is especially in new york you really get the sense that she has these very like perfectionistic tendencies mm. and like uh, a real focus on overachieving so like she wins this new york trip and you know that's a big achievement yeah. she has a scholarship that's yeah. a big achievement she gets a's in all her classes and yet she doesn't really quite know what she wants from it all no there's like this lots of should i should be excited i should be having the time of my life you know a sense that essentially she should be happy but what am i doing this for yeah what am i doing this for and that really that really stuck with me as a teenager because in ireland and and i mean probably here too like there are some subjects you have to do yeah even if you don't like them and then some subjects that are like electives and you get to choose them and it didn't really matter what the subject was like i i did music because i loved music and i wanted to do well in music because i loved music Mm. Um, I hated geography, but I was still like, but I have to get an A in geography. Why? Because an A is an A, and I need it. I you know? definitely didn't even attempt to get A's in geography. I hate, still hate geography. It's not for me. No, it's not for me, but it didn't <laughs> matter. I was just very much like, well, you know, if I'm going to do something, I, I should uh, either give it my all or not do it at all, which is why I didn't do any sports, but did lots and lots of studying to do well in school because I test well yeah. it's that's really what that is I just I'm I have a good memory so I test well good when it comes to the crunch mm, and I'm bad with um, spatial awareness so I didn't do sports because yeah. I would rather not do it than fail yeah. and like that's been a big learning curve as an adult for me to learn that you don't have to be perfect at everything yeah. you can give things a go and be okay at them mm. and that's fine and what most people do yeah <laughs> and it's how you will probably find meaning in things rather yeah. than just being like i gotta get that grade yeah it turns out once you turn 18 you don't really get grades anymore <laughs> you just exist <laughs> so I, the fact that there is all this you know this is this is what i'm expected to do so this is what i will do but there isn't really much of me behind that mm. you know the only like i say the only reason i wanted that a in geography was just to say i got an a yeah. Not because I gave a shit about geography in yeah. any way at all. You know? You're sitting there like, oh, my geography teacher will be so proud of me. I think it was just like, I would be upset if I didn't get an A. I don't even think I was that super like buzzed about the A. Yeah. I think it was just like, I just don't want to not get the yeah. A. What is interesting is kind of her, her boss at the magazine asks her like, what do you want to do? Yeah. Like, what do you want to do after this? What do you want to do after college? Yeah. You know? And so I just want to... Uh, give you another quote Mm -hmm. I felt very low I had been unmasked only that morning by JC herself and I felt now that all the uncomfortable suspicions I had about myself were coming true I couldn't hide the truth much longer after 19 years of running after good marks and prizes and grants of one sort and another I was letting up slowing down dropping clean out of the race okay so even even though she's still doing well, it's kind of like... She's already... What were all these for? Yeah. What were all these um, prizes and winning and succeeding for? Well, she certainly didn't have a very good careers advisor at her high school. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and, and this is kind of followed up two pages later with all my life I told myself studying and reading and writing and working like mad was what I wanted to do. And it actually seemed to be true. I did everything well enough and got all A's. And by the time I made it to college, nobody could stop me. But besides writing, there's no really clear direction. And even that is very... Does she have any hobbies? Did she ever... Is this character that is... Because they're so focused on that thing, they don't actually have any sort of outside life. They can't talk about any other... They can't talk about, you know, world politics. They can't talk about like cookery they can't they literally can only talk about getting good grades at school because i've met those people um i've met people like that i mean in the book like she does like she has friends and she goes out yeah. and but do any of those things provide any sort of meaning you don't get a big picture of it of that part of her life mm-hmm. in flashbacks you only really get it in new york and okay. it does not mm. You you do get where you get nice memories is like she has a memory at some point of when she was a kid and her grandfather who worked at the country club would bring her on a Sunday to get food fancy food at the country club yeah. and he'd like serve it to her and all these things and like she loved the food and things yeah. and she has these nice memories with her grandfather and they're really positive. Yeah. And then at another point in the book she says basically like I didn't realise until now that the last time I'd been happy, I was nine years old. Because in the book, her father dies at age nine. Right. So it's kind of like the last time I was happy was when my father was alive. Mm. And uh, and I'm only just realising that now. Mm. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tough one. And just kind of, I suppose, even on the back of what you just said, um, another point she meets in New York, she meets... Uh, uh, a man who's an interpreter at the UN, like she gets introduced to them yeah. through people at home. She's kind of really impressed by like him and his friends being like, oh, look at all the things they can do. Yeah. And so she starts adding up in her head all the things she can't do. Yeah. So like she can't cook, <laughs> yeah. for example. And at the same time, so like she's, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a picture of someone who's been quite successful, academically mm. at least, but all the way th- through in New York is broadly speaking quite self-deprecating and, mm. and, and, quite kind of lost in terms of her abilities and stuff and yet she was kind of like uh had applied for this course with a famous writer at summer school in her college and she's it's not a question in her mind that she's gonna get it she's Mm. like well i'm gonna go go to the summer school and i'm gonna do this course and i'll send back some stories to jc at the magazine she's gonna be very impressed with me and it's Mm. gonna be great and she doesn't get it yeah so it's interesting that you can be kind of quite self-deprecating and lacking in confidence in some areas and then still think you're like absolutely the hottest shit in other yeah. areas which again we've all met people like that I, louis that's me you live with a person like that <laughs> <laughs> um again less so these days but certainly when i was in college i was both simultaneously like am i the best or the worst or both yeah at the same time <laughs> there are bits of the way she writes that i um I do identify with you know it's funny it kind of like the fact that I still identify with some of these things although I acknowledge that they're maybe not as true in actuality now yeah in 2021 the fact that like it was so true as as a young person um I still feel it you know Mm. the other thing just before I kind of move along from this kind of descriptive piece of like her writing about the build-up of mental illness like once once she gets home to the suburbs and lives with her mother yeah 
she kind of essentially like takes to her bed and is very much like what's the point in getting up and doing things and her friends are like okay you didn't get the writer's course but like come do another just do another summer course yeah like learn something do german or something she's yeah like wants to learn german or something like that she's kind of like, yeah i could do that or yeah or i could just not i could just <laughs> yeah I could just mm, it's fabulous fabulous bed and like she does get to the point where the things she's worried about is she's not sleeping she's not eating um and she can't really read or write in the sense of like the the, no the words kind of jump yeah. off the page like you can't keep the focus yeah. and her writing's gone very childlike yeah like her physical writing not yeah. her like creative writing and when those things get really unwieldy then she's kind of like i should probably go to the doctor yeah to help me sleep yeah but like their equivalent of a gp whereas all the sort of things up to this point was just sort of part of life Mm. which i i think the way the character voices her experience of like you know mental health issues at this point is she speaks about them almost like they're mundane. Yeah. Which... It's so ingrained with her that it's yeah. in the same way that you would say, oh, I've got to, I'm going to put some butter on my toast. Or, it doesn't seem extraordinary. No. At all. There's no... Would you say at this point she's so consumed by it? Yes, but I don't think she would say that. That's what I mean, because when yeah. you're in it, you, were, you, don't you don't think of it, it like that. You don't yeah. seem to go out of it. Exactly. Whereas when you're in it, it's just like you're there. It is... Yeah. Uh, unless something so insane happens that it just comes at you all at once you're just gonna feel yeah it's just there and that's that is sort of like where the metaphor of the bell jar kind of you know she she uses the metaphor of the bell jar throughout the book as kind of a metaphor for for mental illness but like if you are encased within a vacuum and you can't hear the world outside the view of it is distorted by the curve of the glass. Yeah. And you're just sort of, at one point she says she's just stewing in her own sour air. Yeah. That's your whole world. Mm. And it is just very, like you want things to get better. Yeah. But in the book, it kind of reads like, until it gets very, very severe and she becomes quite suicidal at this point in the Mm. book. It's at this point that people are like, maybe we should step in, you know? Um, previous to that it was very normal and even at this point so I don't want to talk about it in too much detail because the reality is the way this book talks about suicide is um, it can be quite challenging to read if a you're not expecting it and it's just the it can be quite upsetting more than anything else is it partly due to the how it was seen at the time yeah but also, so there's two sides of it. Like, I, I'll, I'll talk in a bit about how other people in the book react to yeah. her mental health. Yeah. Which I, I think is upsetting because it really um, displays the attitudes of the time and some attitudes now, to be quite honest. But even just the way, again, she talks about dying in a very mundane way. Like, you might talk about, you know, oh, I might make this meal, but actually... Oh, I'd have to go to the shot. Like, the logistics yeah. of it are the yeah. issue here. Not I'll the, make an omelette, but I haven't got any eggs. Oh, I have to go to the shop to buy I'm some not, eggs. I'm not no, going to bother that. going to the shop, so I'll just think of the something else. The shop's literally next door. I yeah. can see in the window, from my window, yeah. but I'm not going. But And so I don't want to talk about any of the things she thinks about uh, on, on the podcast, but 
it, it, enough to say that the reasons she gives herself not to die are just sheer logistical ones, yeah. which I think can be quite shocking if, if you've not read about depression and, and, and suicidal ideation. You've never met anyone who has, who's openly expressed it. You may have met people who've had that, mm-hmm. but you've never met people who've openly expressed it. I can imagine those sort of descriptions would be incredibly upsetting. Yeah. Exactly. So I mean, like, this is my favourite book, but it doesn't mean it's always a pleasant book. Yeah. Or an easy book. I would not call it a fun romp. No, it's not a fun romp. Not not a fun, breezy romp. No, (laughs) no, it's not. But that adds to the fact that, like, to her, it is just mundane, Mm. you know? This is a real matter-of-fact thing to think about. And, and... You know, that does take up a large portion of the book. That kind of um, thought process is there a lot. And it's not like she does not see it as an outlandish one. Yeah. Or out of the realm of possibility. It's just she's not working out, you know. Yeah. And I suppose you have to consider like Sylvia Platt did have a, a suicide attempt and, yeah. and ended up in hospital. So yeah. she's kind of speaking this, this. This I think it's why it reads so believable is... She's she's not trying to get in the shoes of, of of an experience that she is not that she's just imagining. Yeah, there is something quite moving about the way that that kind of very dark experience is written about. I suppose the other kind of thing that struck me is, and I said I'd mentioned this, is how other people view both mental illness broadly and her mental illness specifically, like her mother has some choice kind of quotes in the sense that like after a negative would it be along the lines of you're being hysterical no oh okay not that okay these are different words no i don't think it's as um even old school as that to be quite honest okay interesting i think people could i'd like to think that people wouldn't say this now but i don't think it would be i don't think it would be completely shocking either at one point, she has a she's very negative experience with her first psychiatrist, and she basically convinces her mother, "Don't bring me back there." Yeah, and her mom says, "I knew my baby wasn't like that." And then later, I need to decide to be all right again, which I don't think is as common a view now. But I don't think it's not not a view. Have you tried just being happier? That things like that. People do yeah. say stuff like that. Exactly. Have you tried just being more positive? Have you tried the power of positive thinking? When she is at the very end of the book, in recovery, as it were, she kind of gets warned by her doctor that people might treat her differently. Yeah. Um, so Dr. Nolan had said quite bluntly that a lot of people would treat me gingerly or even avoid me like a leper with a warning bell. My mother's face floated to mind, a pale reproachful moon at her last and first visit to the asylum since my 20th birthday. A daughter in an asylum, I had done that to her. Still, she had obviously decided to forgive me. We'll take up where we left off, Esther. She had said with her sweet martyr smile, we'll act as if this were all a bad dream. <laughs> and then, um, you know, in the book, she goes on to say, like, a bad dream. I remember everything. Yeah. <laughs> this is my landscape now. Yeah. You know, this isn't just a dream that we can forget about. This is yeah. my life, essentially. Yeah. So there's still, like, you know, there there are obviously worse attitudes one can have, yeah. but they're almost like um, painful in their sort of like lovingness. Yeah, the mother character almost. Do you think her mother sort of feels like 
This is all just a, an inconvenience. No. I think the mother reads more like, you know, I want my daughter to be well. Mm. But the way she's kind of approaching that is if we just pretend none of this ever happened yeah. or that all of it's fine, if we just put our yeah. our positive thinking caps on, then that's what will make her well. As opposed going, to... Have you tried going for a walk? Stop it. <laughs> um, but you know what I mean? It's kind of, it's meant with good intention, but it's not as if you're the person on the receiving end of that. It's a plaster over a shotgun wound. Yeah. Sometimes the phrase like, everything will be fine can be a comfort. And then sometimes it's a slap in the face. Yeah. And it, it's in the same kind of vein as that. Yeah. Like when you know things aren't going to be fine. Yeah. And someone's saying, everything's going to be fine. You're like, well... No. Yeah. So because right now like, we need to accept the situation yeah. because this is what's happening. Yeah. So it's a bit like that, I think. And then the other the other part of the book that really reveals people's attitudes, I think, towards mental illness is her kind of sort of boyfriend, Buddy Willard. Part of the reason he's not around and she goes to New York is because he he's a medical student and he gets TB yeah. and he's put up in a sanatorium yeah and you kind of get these parallels between his experience of tb and her experience of mental illness like they both kind of get sequestered away in their respective facilities there's this quietness in both locations so in in sanatorium they've like quiet time for the tb patients because this will help the recovery yeah and in like depending on where she which kind of hospital and what part of it she's in the, there's lots of silence in the in the hospital because people are essentially sort of like you know this is a time when pe- they still did lobotomies yeah. and ECT and yeah. like there's a lot of that kind of thing that can kind of take the energy down sedate you that's the phrase I was looking mm. for so so you have these similarities and yet Buddy doesn't seem as like societally maligned as her yeah you know his family are, are like every, everyone knows he's in the sanatorium with TV you know yeah. it's not a secret it's not shameful um, he's always you know asking people to visit him yeah. write letters and, and all this kind of stuff and even at the end um, he comes to visit her before she gets out of the of the hospital and his car gets stuck in the snow and she kind of starts digging he kind of looks at her like oh is it okay and she's like well you're the one who shouldn't be doing strenuous activities yeah. here not me which is again very fair Yeah. and so there's this kind of weird I suppose this telling dichotomy between how physical illness is treated with these set of characters anyway yeah and and her mental illness and even with all that you get these kind of different pictures of like well what does mental illness look like Mm. because especially when she gets to the second hospital Mm. she kind of meets various people and she has like uh she meets a woman called valerie and she says what the hell is this girl doing here like yes normal leafing through a magazine yeah and then like valerie later reveals she's had a lobotomy a girl she knows from back home joan uh is admitted while she's in the hospital and she's like what are you doing here joan Mm. (laughs) because you know what does mental illness look like yeah you can be for want of a better word quite normal on the surface and still be suffering yeah kind of in secret or in a way that maybe your acquaintances wouldn't have picked up on, or some rando on the street might not pick up on. they wouldn't. I'm glad that that's in there, Mm. because I think that, like, especially in a hospital context, because I think certainly at the time, 
like the fear of the asylum which is called in the book it's called yeah. asylum i think they were so probably called asylums at the time um is strong and like it's you know it's um insane people end up yeah. in there and and like the women in this hospital are you know suffering with their mental health but yeah. they're not they're not batman villains yeah they're not exactly this isn't arkham asylum yeah. you know they're people they're people yeah what, what else i really liked about it was what does recovery look like which i think is um important to include or else you just have a very very sad story yeah how she describes it i just think is so um so accurate she gets so in the book when she goes to the second hospital she she gets um electroconvulsive therapy again but this time it's not horrific yeah because it's done properly yeah what she says is all the heat and fear had purged itself I felt surprisingly at peace. The bell jar hung suspended a few feet above my head. I was open to the circulating air. And there is something about that, like, you know, this kind of like cloud of, I suppose, like used air or stale air. Yeah. Just finally kind of feeling like it's lifting a little bit. Yeah. I just think it's a very powerful image i think it's why why the metaphor of the bell jar works so well because it works as you know this is what depression feels like but it also kind of works for this is when it lifts yeah there is something like in a kind of the relief of fresh air when you're in a stuffy place yeah that feels apt to me yeah that's very that's i think that's quite i think it'll be quiet for a lot of people hmm. and you do just see her recover more as the book goes on like for someone like I say who's quite obsessed with like figuring out the best way to die yeah at a later point in the book she kind of is like you know popping open the top of her boiled egg with a butter knife and she's like oh I forgot why I used to love knives so much you know it, it is now just something you eat eggs with yeah that also feels natural you know like the recovery doesn't just happen like that yeah it, it it too feels quite like oh we're here now yeah you know that's nice because <laughs> hers is quite a slow slow and steady recovery yeah. once she kind of gets on that path so structuring the book it doesn't you know in this 20 chapter book it doesn't go recovery is like chapter 20 the last page no it's 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 hard to say this is the point where it starts you know because like there's little little bits that move her along Mm -hmm. and then she does kind of make a more i suppose significant improvement once her kind of five sessions of ect have finished yeah but you know you can see again little bits improving along the way which i think is a really important thing to consider about recovery from mental illness which is that like unfortunately you don't get well overnight yeah you know it is much more of a, a step by step things could go backwards and forwards yeah. and it's, it can be a bit zigzaggy. Yeah. And the other thing that this book acknowledges is um, in the last page or so, like she acknowledges, like, how do I know the bell jar won't come back with all its distortions and yeah. things like that. And like, I think that's important to acknowledge, which is that you don't just recover and then, and now I'm done forever. Yeah. Um, I'll never be unwell again mm. because, you know, Life is just maintaining, isn't it? Yeah. Life is just maintaining. It's not a good country song. <laughs> but that's the way it is. And yeah. I think that's a very realistic 
way to consider it rather than and then she recovered and yeah. happily ever after it, it's it's open to both possibilities which yeah. i think is good i suppose the other the other part you get is what happens when you don't recover yeah so her her friend in the book joan who's in the hospital with her who before she dated buddy joan dated buddy and uh and they like went to the same church yeah. and stuff at home and like joan's Joan's character is very parallel to Esther all yeah. the way through when they're in hospital. Um, she gets kind of to the lower restrictions building in the yeah. hospital before Esther does. She gets more privileges and stuff before yeah. Esther does. But then she she is that back and forth. Yeah. You know, she kind of gets higher up the ladder quicker. Yeah. But she she comes back then yeah. and and there's a lot of that. And unfortunately you know in the end Joan does die Joan does take her own life and what was interesting for me to read about it is like I suppose it mainly saw this on like Goodreads and stuff you know not like uh, academic criticisms but but there's I saw a lot of comments that were like oh Joan's death is like really sudden or like I don't really understand why it happened I'm guessing you can profoundly disagree with those interpretations I don't think it matters in the sense that do you think those people aren't quite understanding what Sylvia Plath is trying to portray because I think there's a... what, you mentioned it with um, how mental illnesses can go almost undetected by a lot of people yeah that's how I always tended yeah. to read it yeah so like to me it would make sense if a, you know, a story about mental illness if a character has been confirmed having severe mental illness if they just suddenly die that does to me make sense yeah like, so the reason why people see it as very sudden is because she got to the point where she was like living out. Yeah. Like in a flat. Yeah. And she was still under the care of the hospital. She was an outpatient essentially. Yeah. That, that's oh still, yeah. I agree. Yeah. I, that I, still I, makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Um, because, you know, these these things don't make logical sense. Yeah. Um, so I always kind of took it as you know you, you can never quite tell what's going on under the surface and I suppose I did read because then I got I got really interested in the character of Joan I was like oh I should really look into Joan I never yeah. paid much attention to her besides you know the fact that she has some parallels with with Esther and she's the one who, who dies unfortunately yeah. but one of the things you see written about her is that like she one of the reasons why she might have been like written to die in it yeah. is because there needed to be kind of essentially some demonstration of the finality yeah. of death somewhere. Yeah. And you obviously couldn't have Esther still narrate no. the story no, and Because then it becomes like some supernatural... Exactly. Yeah. There is something shocking about it actually happening. Yeah. As opposed to uh, just thinking about it or just having like descriptions... The character just thinking about it, I mean. Yeah. To show the aftermath of that, like, she goes to Joan's funeral and stuff. Mm. So to really kind of demonstrate the larger effect of of what suicide can do, you know, rather than just as... If you only read, like, the middle bit of, like, Esther, who's, like, in it, yeah. you don't really... She, she never talks about the downside of it, yeah. obviously. Um, so to see like that played out, I think that's important to have in there too. And I never had really thought about that until I was reading. It's the only bit of kind of what have academics written about it yeah. to a certain degree that I, I really read while prepping this because um, I, I was kind of like confused by people's confusion. And I was like, oh, yeah. maybe I'm off. And yeah, there's, there's lots of trying to figure out the why. Mm. 
and, and which is very which is interesting because it's not the characters in the book necessarily trying to figure out why buddy takes a shot at it later he he does say to esther greenwood he's like um there's something about me that makes women go mad and she's and she laughs and then esther the character laughs in his face yeah. and it's like no but he's like but you and joan and she's like no <laughs> stop that <laughs> Essentially being like, no one cares that much about you, buddy. Stop it. <laughs> but like, so he's very, you know, to make it, about it must have been about me, yeah. you know. And people obviously in real life will ask those questions yeah. if that's their situation. But you, there's not always an answer no. or, or a clear and logical one. Yeah. So I, I, I've never had a problem with there not being a clear and logical answer Yeah. Um, for Joan's death in the book. Mm. But it's interesting to have that like I say, that parallel, she's the one who seems to be, like, doing better. Yeah. And she's the one who seems to want what Esther does not want. Yeah. You know? And so that's sort of the mental health side of it. But like I say, when I read it as a teenager, and I was a teenager who was also, like, I've always been interested in, like, abnormal psychology. And, um, you know, I first, I think I first said... I want to be a counsellor when I was in like primary school or whatever. Yeah. So it's always been like an interest of mine, okay. like mental health and stuff. So that's part of why I was so interested in this book. Mm. And then for the aforementioned yeah. reasons of being like, I'm a perfectionist <laughs> and various things like that. That's always kind of what has given me that sort of those catcher in the rye feels <laughs> that I thought I was supposed to um, to get. Mm. But like I say, as I've reread it, particularly this time rereading it, there's there is a lot and it interlinks with it about like, well, what is expected of women in this society? So this yeah. society in the fifties, but also kind of this society. Yeah. We live in a society. We I still haven't looked up what that means. <laughs> I can understand from context, I think, what what you're sorry. getting at here. Oh, the temptation was down, I took it, I'm That's sorry. That's fair. That's, I'll, I'm leaving this in. <laughs> like, one of the things that I really noticed this time, much like when we were talking about Pretty in Pink, and I was like, oh, yes, my view of the men in this movie have changed so much over time. Yeah. I really took notice in a way that sat in my brain throughout this read a lot more, the way the men in this book, their attitudes towards women are. Okay. And obviously they're through the lens of Esther, mm. but it's usually through what they say, not what she just assumes of them. Yeah. So like she has a friend who's only mentioned in one scene who's called Eric and he just has like the the biggest Madonna whore complex there ever was. Cool. In that he's like, you know, sex is gross and people are animals and uh, I, I respect a woman less if I, if I have sex with her. And Esther's like, but what if you love her? Like, yeah. then surely you won't, like, you know, yeah. hate her. And he's like, nah, if I, get, if I love someone, I'll marry them. And then I will go see a sex worker so that I won't sully her. Which is the <laughs> okay. definition of that, you yeah. know. And he didn't say sex, sex worker, I'm saying that. Yeah. And she also gets kind of set up on a blind date with a guy called Marco, who is just a violent misogynist. Yeah. Like, truly... He's like, 
we, we're gonna dance and she's like I don't really want to and he just like forces her to yeah. which sounds not horrific when I say it out loud but no, to no, physically does... force someone yeah. into a dance is and then like later yeah. he yeah I'm aware of but like he's 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 very before. physically violent yeah. to her. She gets like knocked into the mud, yeah. and he just doesn't give a shit and says a lot of horrible things about women. Yeah. So he's another type of attitude towards women, um, and then you just get Buddy, yeah. who's just sort of like a gormless idiot. Yeah, you know, uh, almost a nice guy. Tm. Yeah. She kind of says like. She adored him at a distance for five yeah. years before yeah. he ever noticed her. Yeah. And then once she actually kind of get to got to know him, she was like, oh, no. Yeah. Like, he just yeah. seems... Like, my reading of him now... I kind of think I just thought he was a bit of an idiot when I was younger. Mm-hmm. My reading of him now is just sort of like, oh, he's actually quite condescending. Yeah. And seems to not really care about what Esther actually wants. But like, oh, I wonder if she'll be like a mother wife to me, you yeah. know? Uh, that kind of a thing. Like, at one point, she goes to visit him up in the sanatorium, and he's like, oh, let's go skiing. And she's like, I suppose. I've never yeah. been skiing before. And he's like, I'll teach you. Has he ever been skiing before? No. No, no he hasn't. He's like, oh, I've seen people do it. I'll figure it out. So essentially, yeah. I'm a man, and I know it all. He's a man, TM. So I can I can totally teach you. And then she breaks her leg. Yeah. Well, um, he'd be struck off the register of teaching skiing and then he, And then he seems almost satisfied by the fact that she broke her leg. You know? Well, you didn't listen properly, so mm, that's all. What's What's interesting is, like, at this point in her flashback, she's kind of didn't really want to do any of this scheme thing. And at one point she says, it never occurred to me to say no. Mm. Which I think kind of frames where she's at yeah. when she first meets him and things. And like I said, he's naive enough to think that there's something about him that drives women mad. Yeah. And he also, at, at, at another point, you know, he's kind of like we should get married someday and she's like I never want to get married yeah and he's like I'm sorry what (laughs) that's crazy yeah she's like I I want all these things and he's like that's neurotic to want so many things which you know I'm glad to say with modern eyes to say that as a woman I want these several things and also don't want to get married yeah Uh, your sanity isn't being questioned because of that you know then she's like Esther is very sort of resentful and I think you know perfectly rightly so about society's general idea about like women need to be pure and virginal for their husbands yeah and you must be the perfect girl and uh, you know men uh, they're gonna do what they're gonna do and you yeah. just have to accept that yeah but you must be pure as the driven snow yeah. you know that kind of thing she's like why then yeah. he's always like leading essentially yeah i i can't be uneven yeah I'm not going to beat, he's not going to beat me score wise, no. you know, there's a lot of that. And then she kind of looks at uh, Buddy's mother and is like, oh, well, she's essentially someone's drawing out. I don't want to be that. Yeah. And for most of the book, there is just all this pushback about like, well, you know, kind of fits in that. What do you want? Yeah. And she doesn't quite know because what's achievable yeah. when society's is- always telling you mm. this isn't achievable. I imagine society. I imagine the societal expectation would be, yeah, you you can do this writing thing for a bit, but but then you're just gonna have children. Then yes, like, exactly. You, know, you can do it for like a year and a half because you know, twenty two, old maid. Exactly. And it isn't really until she meets her second psychiatrist, Doctor Nolan, who's a woman down the road, that she mm. kind of someone starts. She kind of finds someone who sees eye to eye with her about it. And I think that like there is this. This kind of what it is to be a woman and attitudes towards women like interacts with 
medical and psychiatric care quite a lot, which I found really interesting. Yeah. Like at one point, Buddy as a medical student brings her to see a birth. Yeah. And she kind of asks about, the, you know, why is the woman kind of essentially like all passed out yeah. afterwards and he's like oh basically like they drugged her up she yeah. won't all of this is a beautiful dream yeah. and she's like she's screaming in pain yeah. a beautiful dream mm-hmm. esther and she's like what a male thing to um come up with these drugs and assume yeah. it's fine so that you forget it and then she what she's gonna get pregnant immediately again then be yeah. in horrible pain again yeah and just that attitude that even though the woman is clearly in pain it's fine because she'll forget about it because yeah. we put her on drugs. Mm. And like whether they're just wrong and assuming that that's the case because they said so or they're like, that's fine that, you know, you can make someone suffer and then make them forget about it. Yeah. That's the attitude there. Her first psychiatrist is a man called Dr. Gordon and she kind of has this idea that he's going to help me and, you know, he'll show me step by step how to get better, which yeah. is a lovely idea. Yeah. It's what you want, I think, mm. when you're suffering yeah. for someone to help you. You know, she kind of feel comes out of it feeling like he's not taking her seriously. They don't really talk about anything in her first appointment except, oh, I, I used to go up to your college and like there was a WAC station up there and lots of pretty girls up there. Um, okay, see you next time. And she's like, what is yeah. that? And eventually he brings her to his hospital and does very horrible electroshocks on her that are like very medically traumatizing yeah. and she's like well no one's ever going to do that to me again yeah because that was horrific later she kind of says it to her second doctor dr nolan who's a woman like you must never shock me because this yeah. is what happened and dr nolan is just like that's no that's not how it was supposed to be at all you yeah. know that's completely wrong and i'm very sorry that that happened to you yeah and so in Dr. Nolan then, you know, she kind of says to her, like, I, I don't want to be under a man's thumb, yeah. essentially. And so, like, I'm in a position where you don't want essentially, like, the idea of a baby just being kind of, like, held over your yeah. head. And so Dr. Nolan kind of, like, supports her in, like, um, accessing birth control and having the idea she doesn't have to get married and kind yeah. of hears her. Yeah. I think it's an interest. I think it's interesting that that Plath chose to write like the doctor who gave her good care and understanding as a woman. Yeah. Compared to like... Very pointed. Yes. (laughs) Compared to the the male doctors. Yeah. Including Buddy, who's a male medical student, who kind of essentially treat her poorly over the years. If that's not a comment about her in experiences of treatment, I'd be very surprised. Yeah. I haven't looked into it. I read her um, full diary years and years ago, so I probably did know then but yeah, I don't know. Like at the ending, the, the, there is this kind of look at, okay, this is Esther's recovery from mental illness. But you also kind of get this, this kind of conscious breaking out of some of these roles that she's struggling with throughout the book. Uh-huh. So like, say, getting birth control. Hmm. Um, she chooses a man to lose her virginity to. Yeah. But uh, she does that of her own kind of yeah. volition. She's going to go back to college. She's, quote, taking back control of her own life. Yeah. And not based on what based on her she's own, expected yeah. to, so about what she yeah. actually wants for herself. So she like, is... she no longer feels the necessity to marry Buddy Willard, and she yeah. tells him that. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Just a few things that have stuck with me over the years. Like I say, I read this book first maybe twelve or thirteen years ago. Yeah, and I've read it at least as many times. Yeah, um, I read it about once a year, I think. All right. <laughs> um, 
was there was like a year or two where I didn't. I lost the book. I got it back. Yeah. It was like stuck down the side of a bed or something at home. And, uh, <laughs> I brought it back one Christmas with me when I found it. There's a few things. These are not relevant to the story in any way. But there's a few kind of like throwaways that have stuck with me. Like I still think about them sometimes. She, she kind of talks about hot baths and how like the bath needs to be like so hot that you can kind of just barely stand the, the heat and yeah. you sink slowly in and it becomes meditative. And I think about that once a week. Yeah. Would you <laughs> like me to draw you a bath like I don't that? think about it in terms of baths. I think about it more just in terms of like hot water. Yes. But like the, the sort of healing and meditative power of a shower or something that's just hot enough. Yeah to bear you know it's it's so obviously if all the hot water in the house is used up we've now discovered the source yeah and it's me (laughs) but i think about that like once a week yeah and have done since i first read it um she also does a throwaway at one point about collecting men with interesting names and that also has just stuck with me i unfortunately do not have a collection of men with interesting names what are you saying about my name (laughs) no it's fine It's not Constantine, is it? Um, Can't all be perfect, right? But the last bit, this is one of the key things that spoke to me when I first read it and continues, I I continue to feel it now. Again, not to the same extent because I'm at a different point in my life, but I, I still kind of understand it. And there's this image of a fig tree that she uses and she kind of gets it initially from a short story that she reads. Yeah. I saw my life branching out before me like the green fig tree in the story. From the tip of every branch like a fat purple fig, a wonderful future beckoned and winked. One fig was a husband and a happy home and children and another fig was a famous poet and another fig was a brilliant professor and another fig was E.G. the amazing editor and another fig was Europe and Africa and South America and another fig was Constantine and Socrates and Attila and a pack of other lovers with queer names and offbeat professions and another fig was an Olympic lady crew champion and beyond and above these figs were many more figs I couldn't quite make out. And essentially she's using it as as an idea of like all these possibilities are stretching out before me Mm. and where the metaphor then goes is that they're all essentially shriveling away she's not picking any one of them yeah and certainly when i was first reading this i didn't know what i wanted to do with myself particularly it would have been the equivalent of i suppose picking your subjects for a levels yes which have a big impact on then what you can do in college, which then have an impact on what your career is. And so I was just very unsure about what to do. And even when I finally did choose what I, of course I wanted to do, because I was, uh, you know, again, would both pick the course with the highest points in the country, but also be like, but no, I definitely won't get it. So I need all these backup plans. Yeah. And so then what order to put those in, like it was overwhelming. Yeah. And I was like, I want all these things but none of these things. And I I still get that now to a lesser degree because I'm like, well, these are all the things, for example, I like could do for a job. Yeah. You know, there's a part of me that only wants to be a therapist. There's part yeah. of me that wants to work in charities. There's there's yeah. the part of me that uh, could have been a teacher, like mm. I was going to be at one point. There's, you know, there's all these kind of things I could have done. There's the part of me that wants to move to the other side of the world. There's the part of me that wants to live in my hometown. There's part of me that wants to only ever be here. You know, like there's, like all people, you have this kind of tyranny of choice. But if you don't pick one, 
You get nothing. You get nothing. I suppose as you get older, the choices become less voluminous. So you don't get as overwhelmed because you have fewer choices to, to pick from. But yeah, it always it always just kind of stuck with me. And in and in the books, it's hard to to say what's going on with her. Is it that kind of tyranny of choice thing? Is it freezing in the face of indecision? Um, when you have depression, you can you can imagine all the possibilities for yourself. But but kind of getting from point A to point B is a completely different story. Yeah. You know, and it's not clear which one of those things it is. Yeah, and maybe it's all of those things. Mm. And yeah, so I just I just think it's it's a it's a great metaphor. Certainly at the time, it was definitely the if not the only way I'd seen it articulated, definitely the best way I'd seen it articulated. Yeah. And yeah, definitely described the experience I was going through with, with those kind of decisions in a way that hadn't really connected with me in the same way before. Yeah. All right. Are you happy to leave it there? Yeah, that's all I got to say. And you had a lot to say. I had a lot to say. I'm glad. I'm glad. Thank you very much for listening. Next time, we will be discussing an album that... I fell in love with, not in 1986, because I wasn't born, but in 2020, during the lockdown. We will be discussing the album So by Peter Gabriel. Very good. Thank you once again for listening. See you next time. Goodbye. Bye.